Hello, I'm Paddy Delaney, and welcome to Integrated Infrastructure, a podcast dedicated to bringing you news and views from industry leaders involved in the development, design, construction, and management of the many built forms that make up Australia's integrated infrastructure. This is episode 23 of Integrated Infrastructure, and our final podcast of 2020. And what a year 2020's been. And to round it off, we have a great guest in Adrian Dwyer, CEO of Infrastructure Partnership Australia. The IPA is Australia's leading infrastructure think tank, addressing infrastructure from the point of view of users and taxpayers. They play a key role in informing industry and individuals, in addition to advocacy work and policy work for the industry. We really do cover so much ground in this podcast, starting with the role that the IPA plays in the industry. And after a short conversation about waste to energy, we get into the meat and bones of 2020 from an infrastructure perspective. We talk about what 2020 was supposed to look like. We talk about the fantastic private and public partnerships that evolved out of the crisis. What a great job government and industry has done in keeping construction going and why that bodes well for the recovery. We dive into the outlook for 2021 asset recycling, investment, and the opportunity to reform in areas like land tax and road vehicle charging. I hope you enjoy this podcast, but before you go, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank all of the guests and listeners this year, and I look forward to bringing you more conversations in 2021. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and here's my conversation with Adrian. Adrian, uh, welcome to Integrated Infrastructure. It's fantastic to have, have you on the podcast and thanks very much for joining us. Um, as always, it would be great if you could kick off and tell us who you are, who you work for um, and what you do. Uh, well, thanks for having me. So I'm, I'm Adrian Dwyer. I'm the CEO of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. Who's a, uh, we're an industry think tank and member network. Um, quite unique. We represent um, the public and private infrastructure sectors. So about 40% of our membership is public sector bodies, 60% private sector. Uh, the public sector ones are all the kind of major state treasuries, Commonwealth treasuries, the delivery departments, planning departments, independent infrastructure bodies, and the private sector sides, the kind of full life cycle of infrastructure from owners, operators, constructors, engineers, uh, lawyers, um, uh, financiers, and the, um, the sort of technology providers in the infrastructure mm-hmm. sector. So 150 members, um, and I've, um, I've led the organisation for the last um, two and a bit years. Um, the last 12 months has been interesting to, to, to say the least, but, um, yeah, that's kind of who we are. I'm happy to tell you about my, my background, but, um, the, the role that we have as an organization is to try and, um, I guess be unashamedly pro infrastructure, but, mm. but on the side of users and taxpayers. So we think about policy, we think about projects, we think about information data about how we can make sure that, um, the best decisions made the best structures are in place but we're also out trying to think ahead of governments and 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 trying um front running on some some reforms and trying to get governments to towards making good decisions for for users and taxpayers yeah fantastic and and around that advocacy piece you've got some great information that you put out there haven't you to the website through your own podcast and where where people can go and find out you know what it is that you're talking about at the moment yeah, so all of the the research we do is all public. So we're not um, we're not sort of some shadowy organisation. We try and we try and operate in the sunlight, and uh, we have a think tank function that produces a, a whole host of bits of data. We run something called the Australia New Zealand Infrastructure Pipeline on behalf of the Australia New Zealand governments, which is a a comprehensive view of the forward pipeline of infrastructure. Anything over three hundred million dollars is on 
uh, that website. Um, we do long form policy research, but also we do lots of um, short form bits of work. We do videos, we do a podcast, mm. we do all sorts of things that are trying to um, kind of get the message out about infrastructure because it's kind of a complex area, right? It's a bit, it's a bit esoteric to people that yeah. they're, you know, everybody knows what a road and a bridge and a, and a, and a pipe is, but actually the economics that underpin it, the the politics that underpin it, there's a lot of mm. complexity in that. So to some extent we try and exist to help um, kind of translate that engineering stuff or commercial stuff into, or policy stuff into the real world. Mm. That's I love the videos that you do. You manage to condense those complex issues into into short passages and, and make them interesting and entertaining as well um but then the i just i just went back and revisited the waste to energy policy document that you put out um earlier today and um it reminded me it, you know you, you've got you've got the mix in there of the politics of the economics but also the technologies as well that, that can be used and um reminded me a few things that i'd forgotten as well so um it, yeah, it's, no, it's a interesting great reference point we don't um like we're not experts in any of these areas but actually policy is kind of a um it's kind of a discipline in its own right it's the ability to be able to tell a story to solve a problem to Mm. bring bring the technology people that that for whom energy from waste might be the particular type of combustion Mm. along with the commercial people for whom it's a spreadsheet along with the, the the public sector people for whom it's solving a waste problem and and try and kind of crunch that down into um, an understandable suite of recommendations for for government to follow, and I, I, I particularly like the energy from waste stuff because it's a new market. Like yeah. if we if we think about things like energy, and we think I've got this sophisticated market with um, you know, a regulatory model and pricing and and participants in it, and the bits that can be competed are, and the bits that are monopoly type infrastructure are regulated. But actually, energy from waste is this whole new market creation opportunity around what do we do with the um, the increasing waste we have, how do you make sure that we're able to move that into towards circular economy principles and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. And it is infrastructure, but in the past it's just kind of been this municipal service. So that's that one's kind of one of those new frontier areas for us. It's not the yeah. traditional energy, telecommunications, water, transport. It's a yeah. it's kind of a whole new space. So they're, they're the fun bits we like to work on. Yeah, absolutely. Um and there's a community engagement battle to be had there as well, isn't there? That somebody needs somebody needs to you know, get hold of that and, uh, and and drive that aspect forward as well. Because I think business and industry is sold. It's the community sort of question that's the difficult one. Yeah, um, one of the problems with energy from waste, people's instinctive reaction is a sort of a backyard incinerator yeah. program. And and the reality is that yeah, it's, a, it's a vastly less worse option than burying stuff in the ground and letting it leach methane for for, for the next 70 or 80 years is actually to to look at opportunities to yes do the things like avoiding the waste in the first place yes recycle but once you get to that point of the other option is to bury it in landfill actually the environmentally friendly option is somewhat counterintuitive which is to combust this and, and mm. recover the energy and use the byproducts but yeah, these aren't simple linear things you've got to you've got to get over the social license issues with that and explaining to people that actually it's this is not just burning stuff to get rid of it. it you're, you're recovering resources through it. So it's kind of, a, I like those ones because they're interesting areas. Mm, no, fantastic. Um, um, before we get in the weeds on, on, on something like that, which I could personally talk about for ages, but um, 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 2020, um, talk, I'm keen to get your view on the outlook of infrastructure um, sort of going forward 2021, but just um, um, 
take us back to January 2020. What was on your, um, you know, what was your your sort of outlook for the year then? What did you think was going to happen for infrastructure in 2020? Uh, so I, thought, I think, um, so January 2020 seems like a long time ago. Uh, um, I, I think that we were, we were looking at a year in infrastructure where there were um, some challenges on the horizon. We'd, we've had, yeah, it's been a, um, it's been a big decade for infrastructure really since probably 2011, 2012, there's been a, mm. a very substantial increase in the amount of money being put into greenfield infrastructure um, driven by some things like the Brownfield transactions. So the asset sales in New South Wales and Victoria um, generated um, money that was invested in infrastructure. And then you've got this virtuous cycle because the, the growth in the economy generating new revenue for the states and, and the ability to invest in infrastructure and all of that was meeting population growth and to mm. some extent meeting population growth that had already happened so we were kind of in this catch-up phase so we we were faced with this i guess a challenge of a market that was it was relatively hot from a um from a construction perspective um the capacity constraints associated with that some of the probably some overzealous risk transfer from from public sector to Mm-hmm. to private sector in, in the greenfield space, um, alongside continued relentless population growth. So we're still in catch-up, but we're still adding, you know, I think at, at, at that stage in January last year, the, the run rate was a, a new Canberra every 18 months. Mm-hmm. And that's how many people, and most of those people were going to be in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Perth. Mm-hmm. So just this, you know, a, a kind of a high-quality problem to have relative to other parts of the world where, You've got stagnant or declining populations. You've got um, challenges of not being able to get the funding for infrastructure. We had sort of mm. the inverse of those. Plenty of people, um, but but maybe not some of the key people that were needed. Um, mm. You know that that goes to your work is you know, finding those some of those key people. But you would have seen these shortages of some really key skills, like tunneling yep. engineers, program managers with ten years of experience, project managers that have done not. Um, hundred million dollar projects or two hundred million dollar project, ten billion dollar yeah. projects, and they, those people just don't freely exist. So we were facing all of those challenges, um, and and then you were beginning to hear murmurs about um, a rough flu that was coming out of somewhere in China that none of us had ever heard of. Mm. Um, and I think that you know that that kind of mid February to mid March, everything changed. Mm. And, it, and we we came to this you know, realization that, it's, that the 2020 we'd all been planning for, with some great opportunities, but some challenges around the edges, was going to be entirely different. And, and I don't think that mattered whether you were you know, running a, a multi-billion-dollar infrastructure project or, um, or or a small think tank um, like I do. We all had to change what our uh, the way we operate our businesses you know, almost overnight. Um, it's you know in many ways quite exhilarating, and in, in, in retrospect, uh, you know, when you, when you come hopefully towards the other side of that, you realise that actually there were some pretty cool things you were able to do because because change had to happen. Um, and I don't just mean from a you know my business's perspective, but um, actually some of the the the, the collaboration between um, government and industry was incredible i mean so yeah it kind of goes to the core of what infrastructure partnerships australia is there was this it was kind of the best of public and private uh, operating together in partnership yeah 
for 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 best for user, best for taxpayer, mm. and 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 a cut through things that things that reforms that had taken decades were being done in weeks yeah. um, because because necessity was there. So yeah, it, it wasn't the um, it wasn't the second quarter of the year any of us expected, but. Um, and it's it's been Bonkers. tough going. But, <laughs> I was uh, I remember yeah. I remember being at the right, right at the beginning of it. I mean, look, we, we we've done some different things this year. This this being a great example of it. But um, I remember listening to your interview with Tony Shepherd, and um, you were talking about the um, I don't know. I think was that was that April? Was that April or May? Yeah, we, yeah, we'd have been kind of late April. I think we recorded that. Yeah, and um, you were talking about the sort of you know oh look you know South Korea's doing this and this is a good example and what have you and sort of I think we all thought that we might be coming out of it soon and yet you know look at uh, the rest of the world there's you know we're we're so lucky in australia you know we're lucky in um i think a lot of uh, you know the attitude of people in australia has, has been really beneficial i mean we have 91 percent compliance in new south wales for us for our lockdown um and you know talking to your your point there about the collaborations that people have found you know um i was talking to alison myrons on um the podcast um, a few weeks ago and um she she's she's just um you know one on, on her wish list for the for the future um for for is, is to be able to maintain that level of collaboration between client contractor and unions you know they've had some great mm. results with unions as well um so um so no you you you, you know you completely agree um, you know I kind of um it, it was an interesting time because there was no playbook for it mm. so i felt this you know you looked at political leaders around the world and you think, um, like you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy, some of the decisions they had to make in this kind of uncertain environment with incomplete information, with no uh, no history to to follow in order to predict the the future, mm. and and then just getting beaten up for the decisions they took. But still getting beaten up. Um, yeah. yeah, in Australia, we in hindsight, I think we got it right. Uh, we learned from the mistakes that there are some cultural reasons why I think we did a good job and, and long may it continue. But, you know, Australians are compliant mm. people. We tend to tend to do what the government tells us to do. I think we were helped a little bit by the, the kind of characteristics of the city, the time of year that it hit us. Mm. Um, and and the, I think to some extent we were, you know, if you think back to actually January 2020, we were all talking about bushfires. Mm. We kind of forgotten it now that actually this year started with um, droughts, bushfires, floods, and and, and now a pandemic. Mm. But but all of those things are reasons why I think we've done well because we're a country that's used to natural disasters. We're used to in a natural disaster listening to the experts in that particular space. So during the bushfires, we listened to the Rural Fire Service. Mm. And we we listened to in New South Wales Shane Fitzsimmons tell us what what we need to do and he's the expert so we follow his advice and then when it came to a um to a pandemic there were a group of people that none of us ever knew existed chief mm. health officers and the chief health officers came on and said um you know, hand hygiene wear masks social distance and in the same way we listened to shane fitzsimmons about bushfires mm. um we listened to kerry champ and others and um and followed their advice and um i think it's it's been a pretty good outcome so yeah. far 
I'd agree, and that's um, that's a, that's a that's a real community. That's, that really is when when people are feeling there's a cohesive effort, you know, um, cohesive effort to 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 get to the same the same destination by people and to to comply. It's uh, it's it's awesome. Um, before I sort of start crying and about how amazing Australia is, um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's some rough points. There's some things we can get better on as well. Yeah, there are, there are, um, but um, but uh, but I'm de- definitely happy that we're going into Christmas in a lucky position. Um, infrastructure going forward, then. Um, um, give, give us your sort of potted outlook of um, of where you think twenty twenty. You know, what's twenty twenty one going to look like and beyond? I might just trace the bit in between first because I think mm-hmm. it, we've got to give credit to governments for one thing in particular they did in Australia, which is keeping construction open mm. and. In, in retrospect, that seems like it was quite a simple thing to do. But there was a point where, um, you know, it was looking pretty shaky about when we went into that first lockdown around March time about whether construction would stay open. And I think the sector did a great job in being able to work with government in partnership and say, well, actually, we're a heavily controlled environment. Um, there, are, um, there are already a whole layer uh, a whole set of layers of controls that exist on work sites. And we can add in a COVID safe control over the top of that. We can add in masks and distancing and different entries and exits and mm-hmm. the like, and was able to give government confidence that the sector could continue to operate. And I think that is, you, you can't overestimate the significance of that for the Australian economy. Mm. that over a million people employed directly and indirectly in construction were able to continue to go to work, counted as an essential service. Those mm. people weren't leaving work sites and going and joining a Centrelink queue. They were they were back at work, albeit with reduced productivity, but do you know what? 10% lower productivity is better than zero. Mm. Other countries around the world weren't able to do that, weren't able to meet that level of confidence between um, government and, and the deliverers. Mm. And it's taken an awful long time for for those construction industries to spool up again to get that economic activity happening. So there are there are GDP points in the Australian economy and people in jobs that wouldn't otherwise be in jobs for but for those decisions. Mm. And I think that it's it, it's given us a pretty solid base to build on for the way out of this. And it's also meant that to come to your question, it's meant that when governments look to a sector to deliver stimulus into the economy. Infrastructure construction has been front and centre because it's a, it's a sector that stood up and delivered mm. during the crisis in a safe way. And actually, it's ready to go when government pulls the stimulus leave, which it's, it's doing at the moment. And we've, we've just had a um, delayed federal and state budgets over the last two months. Yeah. And in, in virtually every single one, but particularly in, in the big funding jurisdictions, the Commonwealth, New South Wales, and Victoria, we've seen already large infrastructure pipelines added to stuff drawn forward in those um, tens of billions of dollars of additional funding, which because the, the sector is match fit and, and already going with, um, they're, they're ready to deploy that. And like I say, there are they're genuinely people in jobs that otherwise wouldn't be in jobs, but for those decisions. Mm. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, we're, t- we're talking about that, that that pipeline that's come now because of these um, these big decisions by um, um, you know the, the, the New South Wales um, and, and the Victorian and Queensland to some extent sort of governments. Um, and and um, I think there's a thing in the fin today about um, 
um, the concern about the amount of work that's coming and, and, the, and the industry's ability to deliver that work. Um, from my point of view, um, I think there's a question about skills. And I actually think there's a, um, if we can get the immigration system right, I think there's actually a great opportunity to attract some fantastic skills internationally to Australia right now, because where else would you rather be? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a good point. I often talked about this to um, friends and family in the UK. And you, you can't, when a crisis comes, you don't, um, you know, you don't have to outswim the shark. You just have to outswim the other guy. Mm. And right now, Australia's outswum everybody else in in my mind. And you look, you look globally, and you'd say, well, Australia's now got a global scale infrastructure program. Mm. We will be seen as a um, well, a, a strong economy, but a COVID-safe economy as well, and, and a, I guess a sense of there's a degree of national pride around the way that mm. we, we've managed it as as a country, but also, um, I think a sense that it's a sort of a grown-up, sophisticated country that's been able to deal well with the challenges. Now, if you're, yeah, it, particularly in the construction space, but the broader infrastructure sector, it tends to be a globally mobile workforce mm. and you can imagine there is a strong desire to um to, to be involved in a, a massive infrastructure program in a sophisticated country that is pandemic safe mm. or at least thus far is pandemic safe i i can see us um I, I can see huge opportunities to be able to draw on global talent to um to deliver the program but i can also see it driving um, the migration component of our population yeah. growth, which gets us back to the point I was talking about at the start of 2020, you're dealing with you know, population growth and these things become not so much self-fulfilling, but but kind of um, self-replicating in mm. a sense as you attract people here to do these kind of highly skilled jobs. They settle, mm. you know, they do they do what I did 10 years ago and um, you know turn up with just you and the, the girlfriend at the time and now we're husband and wife with two kids and yeah you know um, a house and a mortgage and, and a cat and that that contributes to population growth and and then you start you need to start the cycle again about building the the infrastructure to support that so i just think it's a, that's a bound with opportunities but to your point we need to get the settings right because you you can't do this when it's too hard to bring the people or attract the people to australia not because of the natural elements, but because of the impediments we put in place with the, with the migration system. Yeah, absolutely. The, the that, that change from the 457 visa to the 189 makes it far less attractive for, you know, you're talking about you know, needing a project director or a program um, director that can do a $10 billion job. Well, if you're only promising them a visa that's going to go for two years, why on earth would you up sticks and come all the way over here with, the, with no promise of that future? And the reality is, is that we should be hoping those people stay. We want their money. We want those people, high earners, and because that that you know it it, it really does um, propel the economy on. So um, there's lots of reason. In, the, the, yeah, I know we're going to have to chat about it in a minute. But lots of reasons why infrastructure can be one of those drivers to get us out of the um, the recession, um, or not that we're in a recession anymore, apparently. Um, but um, one of the reasons that governments can put can can have these big um, infrastructure schemes at the money is at the moment is because money is cheap, isn't it? They can borrow. There's a lot of opportunity to borrow to borrow, um, which which means that the the sort of landscape for um, infrastructure investment has changed as a result of COVID um, and and, yeah. the, and the opportunities to invest now. But what's the outlook for that sector in terms of 
you know the the the, the arc of a of a recovery and 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 where, where does investment sort of plug in and where, where can they help in that recovery piece um so there's a lot to unpack there um but you're right money money for governments is cheap I, I, um treasury a 550 million dollar treasury bond was just put to market with a negative yield so um, people are paying the australian government to um to lend their money to the australian government which is mm. like absolutely remarkable um so it, it, but ultimately that money has to be repaid mm. um there are um there are balance sheet constraints. We've seen New South Wales and Victoria both downgraded from a, a credit outlook perspective by credit ratings agencies this week. Um, it, it doesn't have a great deal of material impact on their borrowing rates, but it does um, it, it does add a bit of a constraint in about the way that they manage their their balance sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but nevertheless, your money doesn't seem to be availability of money doesn't seem to be the problem mm. but that's borrowing at a, a sovereign level so mm. borrowing against the tax base i think where um where much of the the um the investment part of the infrastructure um, community is is more at the project level so mm. it's it's owning an asset or it's being the the um the um the investors behind a, something like a ppp which mm. is either demand risk or um or, or, or um, uh, government as the, the counterparty to it, um, and I think that's there's probably a bit of a challenge for government there. Is if if money is essentially free and freely available, and if you've loosened the fiscal strings, so you're prepared to borrow to build, um, it does tend to nudge you down the line of, well, we'll just do it ourselves. We'll borrow the money and, and build the project. And the challenge with that is that it, it probably removes some of the discipline around um, how you do things in the most efficient way. Mm possible um and there are a whole bunch of different opportunities for doing that but what we saw over the last few years where there was a bit of a tighter fiscal constraint and be it um self-imposed or otherwise we saw governments doing some fairly innovative things around uh, asset recycling um Mm. around government building and then selling down assets after the initial um uh, sort of risk profile was um was taken out the kind of delivery risk mm. and what what that saw was a lot of very useful microeconomic reform driven by not the purpose of the microeconomic reform but by the purpose of releasing capital that could then be invested in in new infrastructure so that's what happened in particular in new south wales victoria to some extent the act mm. we just lost the sound there and we were just talking about asset recycling so i'm going to edit this but we're going to come back into it but um um we, yeah we, we were talking about the um i think that the the um, the fact that um, um, money is cheap, but um, when it was tighter, that governments did come up with innovative ways of um, of borrowing money and then asset recycling, and how that could be an option for the future as well. Yeah, I think it could because I think that, it, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to have to. Um, it, it's, sorry, I should be absolutely clear. It's the right move from governments right now to borrow to build, to borrow to mm. stimulate the economy. That. That that money is cheap, and even if it wasn't that cheap, it is it is the lesser of two evils to borrow that money and stimulate the economy mm. versus not stimulating the economy and, and allowing a precipitous decline in in the health of the economy. So it's absolutely the right move, mm. but at some point, minds will turn to 
um, balance sheet repair and paying down some of that debt or at least stabilizing that debt. And I think mm. that will reignite the conversation around what it is sensible for the government to own, um, whether there is um, uh, a wisdom in taking legacy assets, um, the mature operating assets, moving those into private ownership and then using that money to to either meet the needs of the infrastructure program or to um, uh, to recalibrate balance sheets. And I think that we'll be having that conversation sooner than we, we think. There is still a, a huge number of assets on state government mm. books that um, have infrastructure type returns. Uh, so um, long dated, stable returns, uh, inflation proof, recession proof returns that make a lot of sense to be held under a well-regulated, well-structured market model rather than by taxpayers. Mm. Um, and, and that conversation, I think, will lead to a, a sort of another round of, um, of sensible asset recycling and then, mm. um, and then hopefully spur on a, a green field uh, building, which, yeah. which gets to that virtuous cycle I was talking about earlier. I, I, I thought that COVID would have been a good example, a good, good opportunity for some of those um uh po- politicians who um ideologically won't asset re- won't do won't go into asset recycling to um to be able to um open up the 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 opportunity to go and do that now but it doesn't seem to be the case um you know for some reason um but um i, I wonder if that yeah. will change look it might i think uh, often you, you get a degree of entrenchment in politics where you, it actually mm. needs changes of government um, not not on necessarily along party lines or ideological lines but it but it's just the act of changing government is it can be quite cathartic in dropping those sort of strongly held views that are strongly held because someone once said them and then they become fact yeah um so i think in some australian jurisdictions that kind of psychological hurdle of of recycling assets won't change until there's either a cataclysmic need to or, or a change of government allows that that mm-hmm. to occur but it is particularly striking to look at the new south wales and victorian response to covid versus say the queensland response where mm-hmm. new south wales and victoria have been able to dramatically increase an already large infrastructure spend because they've had the balance sheet mm-hmm. and budget capacity to do it versus queensland which is essentially um, maintained the infrastructure mm-hmm. spend now that's that's good to be able to maintain it because it's reasonably substantial Anyway, but they just haven't had the capacity in a a, a non-asset recycling world mm. um, because they've had to borrow before the crisis to, mm. to fund their infrastructure program. They haven't had the the headroom to be able to increase mm. their program. Now, I should say, in all of this, when you're going to stimulate the economy, you've got to invest it in the right stuff. And I think that's the challenge for governments. Now, you know, changing the numbers on a spreadsheet and increasing the infrastructure investment profile is half the challenge. Mm. But actually getting out the door, making sure it's spent on the right stuff, making sure you're not overstimulating mm. particular areas of the market, um, making sure that money's not wasted. They're the challenges that, that yeah. those states face now. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I'm conscious of time. I was really keen to ask you what you, what's important to the um, to, to Infrastructure Partnerships Australia right now. What, what, are, what are the key issues for you? Uh, so right now it's some of the things we've already been talking about around how do you mm. um how do you make sure that that stimulus is sensibly spent how do we get when we're past the point of the initial recovery how do you get the right settings in place mm. uh, to make sure that we don't um we're not just deferring 
an infrastructure recession, but actually getting a um, uh, getting the, the the economy through this and building mm. beyond this and getting the population growth back that then supports um, efficiency in the sector. Um, but for me, I think that beyond those kind of immediate COVID recovery stuff, it's actually it's actually about how do you not waste a crisis. So how do we use the, um, the the willingness around partnership, the the cadence with which we've been able to get through changes that would otherwise have taken years? How do we use this opportunity of a, a reset that comes from COVID to tackle some of the, the bigger challenges that we have as a sector? I've been really pleased by some of the actions of treasurers in particular mm-hmm. around saying, well, what are, what are some of those reforms that have been really tough to do but now there's an opportunity to do so new south wales recently announced that it would move from um, stamp duty towards a land tax model uh, every economist um worth their salt has been saying for years we've got to move to this more stable model of revenue um uh, or, or that's around property ownership rather than property transactions um it does things like value capture it does things like revenue stability um but we've all said is a good thing and actually um the, the treasurer here in new south wales has taken the opportunity to do it um, the victorians recently announced the first step on a journey towards dependable revenue sources from roads through the mm. introduction of the distance based charge on one part of the vehicle fleet that will grow over time so i'm really pleased by those kind of um you know kind of in the land tax case a, a really big reform introduced because the opportunity exists in in mm. the road user charging space a a small reform that will grow over time and then we'll see it with asset recycling others so that's the like that's a focus for us is how do you get that um how do you get that reform piece up and keep the momentum of change that's happened through covid to kind of do things differently and make sure that we don't lose sight of that because we're too busy building big projects yeah, fantastic. And I know we haven't touched on it, but um, it, it, for, for you, it's um, it's not just about the recovery. You you spend a lot of time looking at um, productivity as well, which is something that the economy has um, you know has really you know gone down in the year in in, in the past ten years and or fifteen years. And um, we need to see a way to get that back up again. So I know, I know that's a key part of, um, of of your sort of conversations that you have as well. Yeah, um, and actually, it's a really there's like a really um, there's so many COVID opportunities in it as well because. Um, and I know you didn't want to go down this path, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. Um, there were there were loads of little things that happened in COVID that we need to retain. So, for instance, you, if you cast your mind back to um, March and April during the great toilet paper crisis, we relaxed a bunch of rules that, that were in place that had curfews on deliveries to supermarkets in urban yeah. areas. We said that you can't deliver to this historical thing was basically after whatever time of night it was, you couldn't mm. deliver to a to a supermarket because of, of noise for residents. And that's a perfectly legitimate amenity benefit that you'd want to keep. But there was there was short-term relaxation of those rules to make sure that we could get toilet paper and pasta into, into mm. supermarkets. And you know what? The sky didn't fall in. And actually, it turns out the vehicles are a lot quieter than they used to be when those mm. restrictions were put in place. And we, we'd like to see the productivity opportunity taken and say, well, actually, what 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 should we reasonably bring bringing back from those restrictions mm. and making sure that you're protecting amenity but you're also making sure that we can have a productive system where we don't have large delivery trucks traveling during the peak hours when they're delayed by congestion and they delay everybody else by congestion and in fact they could deliver at two o'clock in the morning not wake anybody up 
and there's fresh fruit and produce and toilet paper and pasta in the supermarkets in the morning. Mm. Everybody wins in that, but it took a massive crisis like COVID for us to start to tackle that, some of that stuff. So where it comes to productivity, a lot of it is just making sure that we don't fall back into our own rather lazy ways of doing things. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I hadn't even thought about that, but that's, it's, it's so true. Um, look, you, you need to you need to go. Um, so I'm going to ask you our final question, which we ask all of our guests, and it'll be our final question of the year on the podcast. So um, it's going to you. Um, what are you excited about? What are you looking forward to? Uh, I'm excited about having a holiday at Christmas. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I, I actually think. Yeah, joking aside, the whole sector's been running full tilt. Um, for the last uh, eight or nine months. And uh, I think everybody needs a good break. We had all of that um, exhilarating components of trying to work out how to operate in a COVID world in April and March and mm. May. Um, and then and then that leading into um, actually all the things that were meant to be happening at that time have been pushed back into the latter part of the year. So, so budgets that were meant to May, June, July, have all happened in September, October, mm. uh, and that that sort of there's a um, there's a flow on effect of, of new projects released, new funding available. Everybody's bidding on things. So I think if we could all agree just to down tools for a couple of weeks over Christmas, give everybody the opportunity to recharge, look after our collective mental health, and then um, hopefully hit a 2021 that looks better than 2020 did. Yeah, absolutely. And I think most people are going to be back in January rather than having the whole month off. And, you know, um, um, so I, I do think people are going to get back to work, but I can't, couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's definitely the year to take some actual time off and see your family and enjoy all that time and enjoy the summertime. So, um, Adrian, thank you again. Thank you so much. Um, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and I hope you have a great break with your, your family and the cat. Um, and what have you and um, um, you know if there's an opportunity to come back and have a chat next year at some point when uh, you know we see what, what, what's happened to the world and the infrastructure market that'd be fantastic thanks for having me on absolute pleasure cheers integrated infrastructure is powered by north search specialists in executive and technical search across engineering design construction property and energy markets in australia if you'd like to find out more about North Search or get involved with this podcast, you can click on the links in the show notes or email me directly at the address on the screen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Integrated Infrastructure. Please tell your friends and colleagues if you did, and we hope to see you again soon.